0: Welcome to Surviving Society Presents Legacies of the War on Terror.
1: In these episodes, we will be thinking through complex questions concerning how the War on Terror became the War of Terror for many negatively racialized communities over the
0: past 21 years. Through expert knowledge and the recording of key events, we'll be speaking with academics and activists who are pushing back against the War on Terror's carceral logics. Executively produced by Shireen Fernandez. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society Presents Legacies of the War on Terror. I am co hosted today with Shireen Fernandez, and she's going to introduce the episode for us now.
1: So, we're really lucky to be joined by Professor John Holmwood and Leila Ator Hatch, who is part of Prevent Watch. And today, we're going to be focusing on this groundbreaking report that they both published. On the People's Review of Prevent. And before we get into the uh, details of the report, which looks at the impacts of the Prevent policy, um, I just wanted to start off by asking you both why did we need this report at this time? I think um,
2: it's actually quite funny because I don't want to make myself sound completely redundant nor the report, but if you think about it, we didn't really need the People's Review of Prevent because a lot of evidence that we cited in that report wasn't novel. It had been documented throughout the last 10 years. It's just that nobody was listening. And so you had numerous NGOs and academics who were publishing reports on the impact of Prevent and they were almost like sitting in silos. They were completely ignored by the government. And when Ben Wallace introduced the independent review of Prevent that was going to happen back in 2019, the statement that he made was that now is the time for critics of Prevent to put forward evidence rather than the myths and distortion. But that evidence had always been there. And so the People's Review of Prevent essentially was taking up that challenge that he put forward, that, okay, now's the time for critics to put the evidence forward and we said okay fine we'll take all that evidence that has been sitting there for the last decade that you've taken completely no notice of plus incorporate all the people's impact, the people who are actually impacted by Prevent on the ground, incorporate their stories into this and put it forward in one comprehensive piece so that it could no longer be seen as something that hasn't been put forward. Because I know in previous times, especially even when there was the Shawcross review of Prevent, there were a lot of people who boycotted it. We needed to just put it forward and out there as an alternative to say, look, we are putting evidence forward. It's not that we don't want to engage, but we're going to engage on our own terms.
1: Um, So you bring up a really good point, Leila, And perhaps, John, you can expand on this, that there is a very fine line between boycotting the Shawcross review and then taking part in it, but unwillingly perhaps suggesting that we support Prevent. So does the People's Review Prevent, does that report, does it offer us an alternative solution perhaps, which says that we are neither here nor there?
3: Well, our conclusions are straightforward, that we can see no value to Prevent, and it serves only to scapegoat and divide communities. It scapegoats Muslim communities in Britain, and it also divides what is seen as a mainstream uh, British uh, population from uh, fellow Muslim citizens. So that's, I think, a crucial issue. We, you know, We are not suggesting a reform of Prevent. We're suggesting that uh, some of the things that Prevent is ostensibly designed to produce. That is, better integration can be achieved by measures outside the security uh, process. So that's straightforward. But I think on the issue of the boycott, the important thing about the boycott is, in a a way, our report is not collaborating with the independent review, or let's call it so-called independent review, because the government acts in bad faith. And It was bad faith to initially appoint uh, Lord Carlyle, who had previously been a strong advocate to prevent, as the reviewer. That was challenged. uh, He withdrew from chairing the the review, and then Shawcross was appointed, who in a sense had an even worse record than of Islamophobia than Carlisle did. So when the boycott was announced, you're placed in a difficult position because the government is going to go ahead with you. It's going to publish the findings of the review, and then you'll be in a situation of saying, well, you elected not to participate. In. You elected for your voice not to be heard. So our view is, well, let's make our voice and the voice of critics of PREVENT and those, as Layla said, who've been impacted directly by PREVENT, let's make that voice very audible in the debate through organising and collating an alternative, what we called a people's review of PREVENT, to indicate that the government itself in this area was not representative of the people it purported to be creating an independent review on their behalf.
0: Just for the purpose of the listeners, um, John and Layla, who aren't necessarily familiar with who the kind of figureheads are at the forefront of making prevent such a, a large part of British... Legislation and institutional Islamophobia. Like, who are co- like you mentioned some names there, John? And just to like come back to the, these people, like, can we can we give a, a few figureheads? Can we release some receipts on who these people are?
3: Okay, let's talk initially of two important think tanks. One is the Henry Jackson Society, a uh, neoconservative think tank. Uh, Shawcross is an active member of the Henry Jackson Society, so. Uh, William Shawcross, former charity commissioner, and when he was the uh, head of the charity commission, he enacted uh, uh, reviews, serious and systematic reviews of Muslim charities, and not doing that across the board, but specifically focused on uh, uh, charities expressing Islamic values. So that's Shawcross, but there's also another think tank called Policy Exchange, which is also very active in the security field, very active also in the area of uh, academies. And it is responsible for many of the most recent conservative uh, uh, government policies, particularly in the area of prevent, but also in the area of academy schools. And Shaw Cross was also actively involved. He's now a, a member of Policy Exchange, And so the personnel of these think tanks uh, feed into government. So Michael Gove, education secretary, active in the Birmingham Trojan Horse Affair, was formerly uh, active within uh, policy exchange and so on. So it's a network of these think tanks, and they are, in a sense, uh, driving policy forward. They're both actively involved within policy formation, but also from outside providing other commentary. So, Policy Exchange itself organized a, a major attack upon Muslim civil society organizations just a couple of months ago, saying by our criticism of uh, Prevent, we were enabling terrorism. That had a forward from former Prime Minister David Cameron. And it named uh, our, the People's Review of Prevent, devoted a chapter to it as a dangerous Islamist document. And uh, I think uh, Leila got top score for mentions in the uh, <laughs> in their report as a dangerous figure. And uh, just in case there are people out there who who know, I was uh, indicated as somebody who was where the hard left meets radical. Islam, which somebody who... Is both Pick up yourself,
0: John. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, These I people, they, they don't mess about, do they? Wow.
3: Uh, so then... It's k- kind of sad for a Durkheimian to be uh, <laughs> placed in that position.
1: And what you say is so interesting, John, because we were speaking to Rizwan Sabir about his work on counterterrorism, counter extremism, and he really emphasized this point about developing social solidarities. That transcend borders, whether you know ideological, physical borders, but we need to come together um, and to defend our rights. But as you say, John, and perhaps Aile, you want to think about this a bit more, how does prevent stifle this solidarity from taking place if what we are critiquing, you know, it is a democratic right after all to critique policy and legislation, that's getting turned over on its head. And we are being criticised and branded as the extremists that they purport to defeat, right?
2: The People's Review of Prevent actually was a really good example. And then the criticism of it by Policy Exchange was a perfect example of how this is done. So the People's Review of Prevent had like 18 NGOs supporting it from Amnesty International to Victoria Klimbe Foundation, Mead, Open Rights Group. So you had a number of groups who supported it and endorsed it. You had forwards from the UN Special Rapporteur on Countering Terrorism While Protecting freedoms. You had Conor Gearty, Professor Conor Gearty, who is a QC when it comes to human rights law and Electra lecturer LSE. So you had a number of Muslim and non-Muslim organisations. However, when you look at the policy exchange report, with the exception of John, everyone mentioned there was Muslim and every NGO that was mentioned there was Muslim. So even in the criticism of who is criticising Prevent, they made it out as if there is this small group and that there isn't solidarity about criticisms uh, regarding Prevent, but there's only this small group of Islamists, as they define it, who are trying to undermine counterterrorism legislation. And by doing so, they are enabling terrorism. So that constantly occurs. And I think even with when you see prevent referrals themselves, even on the ground, you know, any pushback is seen as extreme. So we've had parents before, and we actually have a report, a, a social assessment report that we have as, as evidence, where the social worker states in the report in black and white that this parent, when being told that they were going to be assessed, okay, they said, I want to seek legal advice. This is a basic thing that any parent would want, especially if you're thinking my child could be taken away from me, right? Surely as a responsible parent, first thing you're going to do is go running to a lawyer and think, oh my God, what is happening here? What are my rights? And yet that was seen and suggested to be an indicator of extremism. And they write that in the social work report that you know many parents who go and seek legal advice are extreme, right? They are from extremist groups. So you have to think about the kind of definitions of what we're talking about now here in terms of extremism where even practicing the law or trying to, um, you know, uh, induce your rights is seen as a form of extremism if it goes against, you know, whatever Prevent is trying to um, move forward with. That is
1: crazy. absolutely
0: appalling.
1: Because Leila, you said when you started, like, we didn't need this report, that everything was already out there. I've been working on Prevent for, I don't know, over five to 10 years now. And I read your report and I was still shocked by the case studies that you are showing. So I know that prevent is Islamophobic. I know that the way in which it characterizes far-right extremism is completely unequal to how it characterizes you know, Islamism extremism. And yet I was taken aback by the case studies that you presented, one of which was a young convert called Sarah who wanted to marry another convert. And yet her parents thought that there was some sort of criminal behavior and flagged her up to police to the police and then she was then referred on to prevent. So there's a there's a very delicate um boundary between consent when it comes to prevent, which I I guess you and John would know doing this report that even though that the policy stipulates that you must consent to this, that this is a consensual process, in actual matters of fact it's not. We're being told that we have to do this, that if you seek legal advice, you are you know, engage in an extremism. So, you know, is there any room for dissent? Let's say when it comes to being referred on to Prevent.
0: And Shireen, that example that you give, like we talk a lot on this show about the the intimate connection between our sense of self, race, racism, and also love, and like seeing how Prevent, like this this Islamophobic, deeply racist um, structure and, and process, is is tapping into these like the the intimacies of our personal relationships of of people's personal relationships of love of connection it's so deeply harmful
1: absolutely breaking down that family unit yeah I think it's really essential and something that perhaps we need to consider more Uh, something that you know thinking through this idea that's breaking down kinship right something that we don't seriously think about but Perhaps when it comes to consent, do we have a right to dissent from being referred on to prevent, would you say, Layla and John?
2: And no, you don't. And if you look carefully at um, the prevent training that is given across local authorities, um, you'll see in some of the wordings that it says, you know, consent should be sought, however, you know. If you feel that this person isn't going to consent, then you should just send it through in a way. <laughs> so it's, um, it's almost presented as a grey area and they keep talking about consent and consent before sending someone's data onto Channel, for example. Uh, Channel is the de-radicalisation programme um, that follows on if they believe that you have genuinely been referred to prevent and you should go on the de programme. But again, it says, you know, if they don't consent, then it's OK to send their information through. So it's almost pretends to sit in this gray area, but it's really not gray. There is no consent. Um, And even though channel itself as a program is supposed to be voluntary, we've seen time and again, that when people say, actually, I don't want to engage in channel, it's voluntary, right? I don't want to engage that many tech tactics are being used to basically coerce people into taking part in that program so there's a false success even when you look at statistics in terms of who is referred to channel and how many people agree to go on it because a lot of people go on it through coercion through thinking that actually if i don't go on this then they're going to escalate it and because more than half of the people referred to prevent are children every time there is a prevent referral and it involves a child it will by default involve social services as well even if the children are not known to social services previously and so of course even if you think that prevent is voluntary you know that there is a serious weight when it comes to social services and any interventions that they can make and so there's always this internal conflict that many of our clients have um, between okay I don't want to engage in prevent however social services might get further involved and actually have that power to remove my children now Obviously, in reality, it's a lot more complicated than that, and people don't get their children removed, you know, based on prevent. The threshold just simply isn't there. But that fear is enough to stop people from disengaging.
3: Because there's something very powerful about the word extremist and extremism. And so it's quite important to recognise that there is actually nothing illegal in the activities or the ideas that are being presented as uh, as extreme and which are the focus of PREVENT. If there was something illegal about them, they would be the subject of investigation for criminal offences. The reason why there is a review of PREVENT in relation to the Counter Terrorism and Borders Act from 2019, that's the one that set up the requirement of an independent review, it's because that act was bringing in new terrorist offences, terrorist offences like uh, the uh, symbols and flags associated with prescribed groups, downloading material from the internet associated with prescribed groups. None of this material need itself be advocating violence. It's sufficient that it's associated with a group that itself advocates violence. So these are quite low-level offences, but they are offences. They are terrorist offences. Prevent is further back from that with an assumption that some kinds of ideas and ideologies might lead on to things that are judged to be terrorist offences, but there's no evidence that it does. So it is particular kinds of ideas and thoughts that are being monitored, and particularly ideas and thoughts which are associated with challenging government policy and actions uh, outside the parliamentary process, extra-parliamentary activity. And of course, we've seen a new bill come in that makes certain kinds of protests and ways of protesting illegal. That creates a framework in which then prevents will relate to people who uh, are sympathetic to say Black Lives Matter, but some Black Lives Matter demonstrations or activities might be judged to be uh, illegal under the new uh, Act, and therefore the mere fact of being associated with them is sufficient to be judged extremist and therefore uh, get brought under, you know, the terms of prevent. So, do have to stress that Prevent does not address anything that is illegal. No offences are committed. And even if you're one of the 5% of people referred to Prevent who goes on to the channel de programme, that 5% have still not committed an offence. So it's like stop and search, which excessive though it is in relation to knife crime, has the object of perhaps finding an offense in the process of stop and search. This is stop and search mentally ideologically with no offense at the end of it, and that 's why you know people say, well, the offense is being Muslim, being overtly and excessively Muslim, and so on that that's uh, you know part of it so given that policy exchanges now advocate the Groups like Prevent Watch, like Muslim Council of Britain, like Mend, which advocates against government policies, they're suggesting that they should be monitored and registered on a list and certified for whether or not, not just whether they can receive public funds, and that would include from local authorities or uh, national government but whether they could be engaged with by other groups. So they're trying to create, uh, a, if you like, a, a, a cordon around Muslim civil society organizations and suggest if you participate with them, if you collaborate with them, if you enter dialogue with them, you yourself might be excluded from dialogue. So what we will expect is... Politicians saying no, I, we you know we can't appear on a platform with organisations that appear on a uh, list, and yet that list is of organisations advocating change democratically. It's an extraordinary situation, and and the threat to everyone's civil liberties uh, is real. But there is an absolute fundamental threat to the civil liberties of British Muslims.
1: I think what the report does so well is highlight the hypocrisy of this policy. So on one end, you have prevent uh, encourages the idea of safe spaces, that school should be safe spaces, that teachers are operating in a safe space. And yet, when you read your case studies, you're seeing the total opposite is happening, right? So, in one particular case study in the report, um there was a teacher who said that books were removed from her classroom because um it was encouraging um, I think it was racial equality, perhaps, or um I I can't remember the exact wording, but it was it was it was it was, it was, it was during the time of the Trojan Horse affair and, and prevent. Um was increasing its training in schools, the head teacher turned around and said to this teacher that yes, they did remove the books and that more censorship is needed in these spaces of education. So rather than promote this idea of inclusivity and, um, you know, safe spaces, we're seeing the complete opposite. And I guess one of the concerns that many activists and scholars have is that with the promotion of, you know, well, we're, we're also tackling the far right prevent is transforming into an anti racist strategy, right? Um, so I don't know if you want to dwell on, on both. That's um, such a good
0: that's such a good question, Shireen because like I feel like they it, like really them it. it no it's a really good question because I feel like when we have seen like prevent pop up a little bit like anecdotally let's say in the media or within public policy, we are seeing more conversation or quote unquote conversations or dialogue discourse about the far right and it's almost mm. like them trying to kind of neutralize themselves that, well that's that's just my my reflections there I don't know what what are your thoughts Layla?
2: so the far right is a complete red herring when it comes to prevent um if you think about prevent, there was an there has been an evolution for the last fifteen or so years. Okay, initially it was for the Muslim community, targeted by the Muslim community, and funding was given to the Muslim community to do their own jobs in surveilling each other. Um, so it was very clear. And actually, if you look at some of the documents um, just before twenty ten, they actually describe it as the preventing Muslim extremism uh, strategy in some of the guidance documents produced by the government. So. There is no question about who this policy was designed for. So inherently, it is going to be Islamophobic because it was designed for the Muslim community. From sort of 2011 onwards, there was talk more about including other forms of extremism. And this is where the far-right idea came up in terms of, oh, well, actually, we're going to address that concern that we're targeting Muslims by also targeting far-right extremism. Now, unfortunately, when you look at the stats... The layman says, but it's not targeting Muslims because, you know, you've got 2,000 people referred under far right, 2,000 people referred under Islamist extremism. It's the same, but those are raw numbers. Muslims only make up 5% of the UK population. So we are disproportionately targeted, even if the numbers seem equal. We are more likely as Muslims to be referred to prevent. And even if we're not referred to prevent, that fear still remains. That prevent environment remains embedded in the psyche of the Muslim community. So that's one point. The second point is a lot of the things that come up in far-right extremism cases, and we've had a few of those come through to the Prevent Watch helpline as well, are equally just as bad. So you have children making comments that could have been dealt with by a teacher, whether it's a homophobic comment or a racist comment that could have easily been dealt with by the teacher and being used at school as a teachable moment, but instead is being escalated to prevent, and it's being dealt with in this completely securitized manner. The cases are equally horrendous um, in terms of how much trauma it's causing to these children and the impact that it has on the children and these families. And it's not actually addressing far-right extremism. I think a lot has to be said about the labels and why people are referred. And, of course, none of that information is given. We're given broad stats to make it out like there is some sort of transparency when it comes to prevent. But actually, there still is a huge amount of opaqueness when it comes to who is being referred and why.
0: Layla, that point is so powerful because you know what? It also checks me and my politics as well because... It's not a race to the bottom on this stuff. Educating um, and having teachable moments with young people that project views that are harmful, hateful, ra- racist. Like, this shouldn't mean that they're penalised and we shouldn't engage in classroom logics. The point is, it's about educating, creating teachable moments. Like, it, it's such a powerful point that I don't even think we've ever really touched on on the show before. And it's really, yeah, it's really important.
2: I think another important oh. point is that Prevent doesn't actually work to prevent terrorism. If you look at the objective Mm. of Prevent, it clearly states that Prevent is there to stop people from being drawn into terrorism. There's never been any evidence to suggest that it actually does what it says on the tin. So essentially, all of the concerns and all of the issues around Prevent, about how it's not working, about how flawed it is, are being taken from one community and extrapolated onto other communities and other groups. So you are essentially doing the same harm that you were doing to Muslim communities, to other groups. And for that to be a justifiable way to continue with Prevent, we have to ask ourselves a serious question about, is that okay, would we say that anywhere else? Would we say, okay, police brutality against this community is okay as long as you're doing it to this other community? Is what You wouldn't say that. So why is it that we find it acceptable in Prevent and say, it's fine, it's not just the Muslims because we're doing it to the far right as well. Like, Why would you say that? You would never even con- consider saying that in any other
1: scenario. We're talking about abolishing it entirely, regardless of who it targets. But I do find that the inclusion of the far right is used firstly to silence critics that, look, we are remorphing and rebranding to all forms of extreme zone, terrorism and so forth. But it becomes really difficult. Um, and, and I read a really excellent article by Nadia Ali, who links far-right extremism to the current state of the government right now, that a lot of the rhetoric that we see in far-right or so-called far-right extremism, you know, anti-immigration logics, let's say, the this idea that they are the defenders of British values, all stems from government rhetoric. I don't know if... Do you agree with me, John? Do you think that maybe I'm reaching a little with that reading? No, no, I
3: think that's absolutely straightforward, and it's explicitly stated by the advocates of Prevent. So Robin Simpox, who is currently the uh, head uh, Commissioner for Countering Extremism, has said we have to be very careful to distinguish between far-right extremism and mainstream right-wing views, and that the same values – are associated in each position. And what uh, Simcox specifically refers to is, as you said, that anti-immigration is a legitimate political position, and also it's legitimate to be concerned about the civilizational values of the West being undermined by uh, uh, immigration and so on, so-called replacement theory. Is part of the mainstream. And because it's part of the mainstream, it should not be subject to a prevent referral. You know, that is, somebody should not be reported for consideration by prevent if they hold mainstream right wing views, which include being hostile to immigration and so on. And if you look at the uh, Department for Education's recent guidelines that they've set out for Uh, the school curriculum and prevent in relation to the school curriculum. They don't define racism as an extremist view that should be the cause for concern. They say that anti-racism is a potentially extremist view. And and, And also any view that represents uh, a particular group as victim, and, uh, and so on. So that, uh, they yes, they're very closely entwined in that. And I think quite a few people in the mainstream right do believe that actually, uh, you know, so let's just accept for one moment that they sincerely are hostile to um, far-right views. And Given Trump and what's happened to the Republican Party in America, I don't think we can assume that people in the mainstream right are necessarily hostile to far-right views. But if we just give them the benefit of the doubt and say yes, they are, then what? One of the things they're arguing is that the far right derives some of its force uh, from the failure to deal with uh, uh, Islam and. Uh, Uh, Islamists. And so it's as if Muslims are blamed not only for actions of themselves, but also blamed for actions of the far right. And you see that scene. And it's a very strong argument for assimilation and an argument that uh, some, I mean, uh, Chantal made the reference about. Bodies and to say that, uh, you know, if you say, well, one of the purposes in, of politics and integration is to ensure that everybody can be comfortable in their own body and in their own skin, that what is being denied is Muslim expressions mm. of who they are. And I think that extends also to other uh, ethnic minorities too, and that's part of what the hostility to Black Lives uh, Matter is, which is one of the ideological um, targets of uh, you know of you know right wing uh, politicians.
1: Uh, just for the benefits of uh, the listeners, John Robin Simcox did he work for HJS or was a Policy Exchange prior to becoming the It's
3: uh, HGS. He is linked with people at Policy Exchange. And, uh, you know, so he's linked... He's set up a a new uh, counter-extremism group, which, because he's become head of the Commission for uh, uh, Counter-Extremism with the government, he's given up his position as director of that group. That's taken over by Hannah Stewart, who... Previously was at Policy Exchange and went from Policy Exchange to um, uh, counter uh, to have a position within the uh, Commission for Countering Extremism, and then has gone over into this other group. And that, and uh, also in 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 the counter extremism group is um, uh, Lord Carlyle. So there's a, a series, you know, it's like a series of revolving chairs, but. Uh, Um, And Simcox has quite strong connections with uh, uh, US-based neoconservative groups as well.
1: So my last question um, is about integration. And the report states that integration was a factor which led to, or the lack of integration by Muslims was seen as a factor as to why Prevent was rolled out when it was, right, why it gained so much traction um, and we see it with the Trojan horse affair, um, that the failure of integration led to David Cameron and others saying that um, this was a failure of state multiculturalism and so on. Now, I don't know if you both know about what's happening in Leicester right now yes. between Muslims um, and Hindus. And there's been a lot of talk about both groups not integrating and whereas prevent where you when you need them what is the danger of utilising this language when it comes to non-white populations, let's say, when it comes to ethnic or ethno-nationalist disturbances?
3: Well, if I just... I mean, I'll put it, uh, you know, very blunt. It's what uh, Leila had said before, that a bad policy doesn't become a good policy just because you can apply it to some group uh, that you don't agree with. So there are... Issues of the mobilization of the Hindu right in Britain, and we should be concerned about it, we should take steps around it. But I don't think prevent is a mechanism for doing that. And basically, uh, arrangements within communities and across groups within communities are the best solution to it. I think there's, there's something really paradoxical about the representation of. Uh, British Muslims or Muslims in Britain as not integrated. They come up in all the surveys as the most integrated group uh in Britain. In fact I get some some flack from more um you know critically oriented colleagues that uh, well integration isn't a good thing. I said, well you can say whether it's a good thing or a not thing, but actually the surveys show that British Muslims have the highest commitment to what is called uh, British values. That is commitment to uh, democracy, rule of law, religious tolerance. And I think the clue is there, religious tolerance. The problem is that mainstream British are not integrated in the sense that they lack a commitment to British values, and particularly the values of religious tolerance that is evident within other groups. And if we take the Birmingham Trojan Horse Schools, you know, as the example, what could be more integrated than a school that is achieving such high results for its pupils where uh, girls and boys within the school are achieving equally? And yet that school was presented as if it was an affront uh, to British values rather than a model of multicultural integration. And the point that I always make, because it's the one that when I first became involved, when the penny dropped with me, was you know, as a parent of children, they've gone to school. You know, my children went to school as a space that was very familiar to them. Every child should be able to go to school and take their whole self into school. They should, they have a right to be recognized within the school for who they are. They shouldn't be required to believe that their parents represent something problematic. No child should be asked to repudiate the culture of their parents and their families in that way. And routinely, that is what the emphasis on British values is doing, is saying that there's something un-British about the values of ethnic minority children, families and minority religious traditions. For me, Birmingham showed that that was not true. It doesn't mean that we won't have conflicts, but then actually if you have a robust sense of who you are and the fact that you are listened to, you're going to be able to engage with others in defense of your interests, but also in recognition of the need for other people's interests to be defended as well, so we're completely back to front on this, and that actually uh, the, we should be drawing upon traditions within Muslim communities, within Hindu communities, which are about working together and which empower people to actually, uh, you know, put a stop to the hotheads and um, uh, you know disruptors that occur in all uh, communities.
2: I'm glad that you brought up Leicester because it's an interesting one that people have started to talk about in terms of Prevent, um, which just goes to show how misused Prevent is. What we have happening in Leicester right now is armed people, right? They are not in the pre-crime space anymore, okay, because they are armed and they are attacking people. Okay, So forget Prevent because prevent is pre-crime, prevent is supposed to stop people from being drawn into these ideas in the first place and these types of actions. So when you have a situation in Leicester, surely it should be a police matter and it should be dealt with via the criminal justice system. Which brings me on to my next point, which is that prevent is so much a symptom of a lot of the wider issues that are occurring. Um, You know, we look at the failings of prevent, we look at how prevent is rolled out, some of the tactics used, and then look at the broader criminal justice system um the failings there look at other legislation look at the nationality and borders bill look at the things happening in terms of restricting protests and what you can do online um all of these things kind of tie into one another and are connected um and i think it's just really important that people don't get distracted by this idea of oh my god if prevent was here somehow leicester would be in a better situation no you have muslim youths who are being attacked by right Hindu youths, and in any other circumstance, that would have been dealt with properly by the police. You know, if it was Muslim youths out there armed, they would have been arrested. Right, they wouldn't be allowed to be marching down and do what they're doing. Okay, if it was black youths marching down, they would have been arrested. Okay, so in no other circumstance would this have been allowed to happen, other than this case where you have Muslims as the victims, and you have right-wing uh, Hindus. Who are the perpetrators? Um, and I think part of this as well, and part of why, and you know, I don't want to move into kind of conspiracy and assumptions, but part of why this is allowed to happen is because then the Muslim community will say, actually, maybe more needs to be done. Maybe more measures need to come into effect, and more extreme measures need to come in effect into effect, so that we can all be safe. Okay, we'll remove some of our liberties so that we can be more secure. So that when announcements are made later on to say, actually, we're going to remove X, Y, Z in terms of your liberties, um, people accept that more because they've already just gone through this trauma of what they think could have been, um, you know, prevented, essentially.
1: I've learned so much from both of you today. Um, One thing, well, two things. First of all, that no matter what the cracks are with the criminal justice system, policing as an institution, we're not addressing that because we're having this new policy or whatever that is filling in the gaps. But one of the main takeaways, and I'm going to use this in my publications, a bad policy isn't a good policy, even if it's used against your enemies. That it's is such a big, big takeaway.
0: Point. And I, I, as I said before, I don't think we've actually had that kind of that kind of dialogue on this show before. Like, if anything, I've probably engaged with the opposite. <laughs> it's been such a big learning learning space for me like and i'm just so grateful for all you guys that have been put, to, put put together this people's review like it's proper civil society work like it really is it's so important um and it gives me hope as well even though like it, it's a madness
1: that's that's a nice way to end it hope well, what's next for the people's review Prevent.
0: oh yeah actually no john and Layla, have you got any kind of hopeful anecdotes and or <laughs> things to things to, for listeners to take away
2: I think one of the things that we tried to do was to um, incorporate as many of the stories into the report as possible. So although we have like over 600 cases documented, you know, we we only cited about 30 or so of those cases. Um, so there are still plenty more. But one of the things it does do, I know it can be quite scary when you look at them, and you think, oh, my God, that's horrific. But these people coming forward to tell their stories is always very empowering to others who have been through similar situations. And we do get people reaching out at the back of the the back of that saying, you know, oh, this happened to me as well. Um, So I think there is a shift in terms of how strong these impacted people feel um, simply by sharing their stories, by understanding other people have gone through it, um, through things like the People's Review of Prevent itself and how much support that garnered from other um, NGOs you know this was a joint effort this wasn't one organization putting a report out this was a combination of organizations standing together and even when policy exchange came out and attacked deliberately only the Muslim organizations you know the the non-Muslim organizations and individuals who took part in that came out on Twitter um, and kind of hit back at policy exchange um, and just basically laughed at the lack of credibility of their report Um, So I think that is hopeful. I think the fact that we can work together a lot more quickly without all the red tape, um, the fact that we can put out a report prior to Shawcross having put out out his report, you know, just as small, um, not so well resourced or funded organisations, we can put out something before, you know, Shawcross is able to put out something. It's been three years now from the initial um, announcement that the report would go forward. So um, I think that gives me some hope. And also just seeing how um, public sector workers who have this duty mandated on them, right, they have to legally report people to prevent if they feel that they might be vulnerable, that they are also showing more interest and pushback to what they are being told they should do without thinking. Um, So they are essentially being told to roll this out without thinking about the consequences or the impact, the fact that they can see the impact and they say, actually, hold on, I can't just make that referral and say it's up to somebody else. Um, I think that is, gives me a lot of hope. We've had a lot of positive feedback from people who are involved in the education sector and the health sector who want to be more involved in terms of how they can, you know, how, how they can push back.
3: All of the above. and uh, Just add, add one thing, because I think the government is operating through a particular kind of divisive partisanship in which it scapegoats some, in which it uh, represents, you know, groups and people who criticize them as beyond the pale. And one of the things that I have found is that actually engaging in dialogue, you know, dialogue amongst people where you're in agreement, but also dialogue across difference. Actually, that's the hopeful thing. People do moderate their positions if only they're allowed to engage with each other. Essentially, what government seeks to do is keep people apart. I think one of the uh, consequences of um, COVID was to keep people apart. And I think one of the positive things that will happen is if there's a coming together. And it might not be uh, with prevent at the focus, but might be the cost-of-living crisis and so on. But what we'll see is that communities will show uh, resilience. And I'm absolutely of the view that the most resilient communities in Britain, even though they may be most affected by um, the cost-of-living crisis, are ethnic minority communities and minority religious communities who are actually able to uh, show the nature of support and what I might call political friendship. So I think that's the the hopeful thing uh, for the future, uh, uh, forms of political friendship that provide support for each other.
0: That's amazing.
1: I'm just absorbing so much and I can't wait for the listeners to listen to you both and to read the report too.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much, Leila and John, for joining us. And Shireen, thank you so much for producing another amazing episode. Uh, Listeners, we'll see you again next week. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Legacies of the War on Terror. Guest, executively produced by Shireen Fernandez. You can keep up with Surviving Society on Twitter, Instagram, Apple Podcasts and Spotify.